Donald Trump was arrested and arraigned this week in Manhattan. Now that the indictment has been unsealed and the statement of facts released, were there any surprises? What happens next and how did Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans respond? like you probably expected they would, despicably. We will discuss. Special counsel Jack Smith had some big wins this week in his criminal investigation into Donald Trump. Former Vice President Mike Pence announced he would not be appealing a federal court order requiring his testimony before the Washington, D.C. grand jury, and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals denied Donald Trump's appeal trying to block the testimony of his other former top aides under executive privilege and some other big wins by Jack Smith that we will discuss on this episode of Legal AF. Another major ruling was handed down by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals this week. The Court of Appeals reversed federal judge Carl Nichols, a Trump appointee's prior order, holding that the obstruction of official proceeding count could not be filed against January 6th insurrectionists, except in the narrowest of circumstances. This ruling by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals confirms that federal prosecutors can bring this very powerful obstruction of an official proceeding charge um, and that the prior convictions of these charges will not be overturned, which could spell big trouble for Donald Trump as well. We will discuss. Speaking of Trump judges, a Trump judge, and I should add a man from the Northern District of Texas, issued a disgusting order on Friday blocking the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, the very safe abortion pill. And in the ruling, this Trump-appointed man judge said, pregnancy is not dangerous. It's a normal physiological function that should not be subject to the administrative rule procedures from the year 2000. And within almost minutes, though, of that ruling, another judge, a judge in the state of Washington, who was appointed by President Obama, uh, made a conflicting ruling compelling the FDA to keep its authorization for this very safe drug. What are the implications for these dueling orders? We will discuss. And finally, right-wing Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was exposed engaging in what could only be called despicable criminal conduct in a bombshell report by ProPublica. Um, he was caught taking millions of dollars in gifts over the course of many decades from a right-wing donor. We're talking about private jet flights. We're talking about trips on super yachts. We're talking about luxury vacations every single summer, partying with leaders of the Federalist Society. So what happens next there? What can be done? We will discuss that as well here on Legal AF. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. Michael Popak, how are you doing? I'm doing great. What an introduction. And uh, got a lot to cover, but because I follow some of the social media, I made in honor of Tim Russert <laughs> a whiteboard, which I posted on my social media. This just keeps track of, we're going to need a bigger board, but this is just where we are with Donald Trump so far. 
We're going to talk about number one, Manhattan DA indictment already happened. We're going to talk about Fulton County, Georgia, which we expect to be an indictment in May. Three is Jack Smith and all his grand juries in the District of Columbia. Four is E. Jean Carroll civil rape case, federal court in New York, that's going to trial on April the 25th. Five is the New York Attorney General $250 million civil fraud case going to trial in New York State Court on October the 2nd. And then at least two other major civil cases against Donald Trump involving Brian Sicknick, the former Capitol Police officer, and his, and his family under the KKK Act, and a civil fraud case involving things that Donald Trump and his family did when they were on The Celebrity Apprentice to sell uh, video phones that was a fraud that's also going against him. This is what this guy has to wake up every day and think about and look at. Yeah, you know, people were saying the wheels of justice, we've talked about it, they move slower than sometimes we would like, but as we've been keeping the legal AFers informed about, they have been moving, you know, and something that's not on that board as well, because it doesn't directly relate to Trump, although it indirectly relates to Trump. Jury selection starts next week in Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox, right? April 13th will be the first day of jury selection there, and we will, of course, be covering that on Legal AF. There, Rupert Murdoch tried to avoid testifying at trial in this past week. The judge says, I ain't gonna quash that if uh, Dominion wants Rupert Murdoch to testify and Lachlan Murdoch, they are going to testify. A very historic week indeed. Um, Donald Trump was arrested and he was arraigned. Finally, finally, there should be no one above the law. And this week demonstrated that very basic principle. There's nothing politicized about what Alvin Bragg did. What was politicized was the fact that for decades and decades and decades, Donald Trump was not brought to justice, that he got away with it, that the Republicans gave him political cover. And by the way, following his arrest, following his arraignment, um, leading up to it, the MAGA Republicans continued to do that, right? You have the House Judiciary Committee, the House Oversight Committee. You've got Jim Jordan, who's not even a licensed lawyer, who just like rolls up his sleeves and just starts yelling and screaming on TV about a bunch of nonsense. And James Comer, the head of the Oversight Committee, also not a lawyer. So two not licensed lawyers, although Jim Jordan at least went to law school, but two non-licensed lawyers continue to try to interfere. And by the way, I believe their conduct is criminal. Try to interfere with Alvin Bragg's now criminal case against Donald Trump. They subpoenaed Mark Pomerantz, who used to be an assistant special uh, DA under Cy Vance and who resigned under Alvin Bragg. They want Pomerantz to testify. They just subpoenaed Matt Colangelo, uh, who was a former DOJ official, top DOJ official, former official at the attorney general's office as well in New York. 
and is a uh, deputy now as well uh, within the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. So they want to subpoena all of the people who work for Alvin Bragg. And Alvin Bragg just issued a response saying, you'd better serve your constituents if like you focused on real issues and stopped criminally interfering with the investigations that we're doing. And now a criminal case. This is an unprecedented effort by you to try to politicize and interfere with this. We prosecute falsifying business record cases every single day here. And so that was some of the fallout. But Popak, why don't you go over, just, just, just were there any surprises to you in the way the arrest went down, the way the arraignment went down, what you saw in the indictment? Yeah. Maybe just talk about the indictment briefly as well. And, and any surprises other than when the police officer, when Donald Trump was exiting after he got arrested and fingerprinted, just uh, didn't hold the door for him and just let the door slam on, on, on Donald Trump? Any Welcome other surprises? Yeah, welcome to New York, um, Trump. Yeah, a few that have come out, including some reporting. We got a transcript now, about 34 pages of what actually happened in the arraignment room, the courtroom with Judge Mershon, you and I, and your brothers and Karen and others. We were we were commentating, but we were getting a feed report from what was going on in the room. Um, and now we know what happened in that room, and I want to describe that as well. Um, it starts at the beginning when they booked him, um, they asked Trump what his profession was. And you would have thought as much time as he spends calling himself the president and 45, um, he responded that he, he didn't say uh, former president of the United States, president of the United States. He said businessman. He was already, already back to being just a, just a businessman. And then he gave his height and weight, six foot, six foot two and 240 pounds. So he, sh he got back to where he needed to be. Supposedly he tells people he's six three. I think on his, on his uh, mug shot that he's using for, for uh, grifting, for fundraising, it lists him a mm -hmm. six five. So, but that's not true. So then he goes into the courtroom and we have to contrast Donald Trump before he got into the courtroom, social truthing all along um, and attacking the, presiding judge, Judge Mershon, as a Trump-hating Democrat judge and family and all of that, and the attacks on Alvin Bragg, you, literally a photo of him with a baseball bat trying to brain Alvin, Alvin Bragg before he got in the courtroom, with what transpired in that 34 minutes or, or so in the courtroom, and then what he did in Mar-a-Lago. Because in the courtroom, he was a small, little, whimpering man who just sat with hands folded, looking forlorn and angry at times, who didn't say anything at all. He shuffled papers. You got Joe, here's the picture we put up for those that are watching, and I'll describe it. You've got in the first chair, the new lawyer he's hired, Todd Blanche. He's, at, he's what we call the first chair lawyer. He'll probably be the lead trial lawyer for most of what's going on. Next to him, Susan Necklace, who lost his... Trump organization or Trump cases against the Manhattan DA for 17 counts of felony fraud back in December. Then Donald Trump, then Joe Tacopina. He's got the seat usually reserved by a third level associate who has to sit on a witness or sit on a client and just keep him busy. He's not really having a major role. And then you've got this, the current Michael Cohen for um, Donald Trump. What I mean by that is the in-house consigliere, Boris Epstein, who he himself has had his own phone picked up by the feds um, because he's part of a criminal investigation by Jack Smith. 
he also brought Todd Blanche, the new lawyer, to the to the to the game because he had represented represents Boris Epstein. So that's the motley crew that's sitting there. But the reporting from in the room is that other than one comment, that, uh, two comments that Donald Trump made, they were the following: Do you plead guilty or not guilty to the charges? Um, the, the the judge having kicked it off with, let's get to the arraignment of of Mr. Trump. That's how he kicked it off. How do you plead? He said, not guilty. At the end, the judge, after listening to Chris Conroy for the Manhattan DA's office, um, after reading the indictment, say, "There's um, we're worried about Mr. Trump and his attacks on prosecutors, prosecutors' families, the impact on the jury, the impact on the city at large, and having listened to that, the judge said, look, um, First Amendment is important. He's got the right to speak. But he looked at Trump and said, you are not allowed to incite civil disobedience and civil disorder. And I'm going to watch you carefully. I'm not going to put a gag order in place now. But he also lectured the president, I'm sure, Trump, the former president, I'm sure Trump wasn't happy about it. And he said, if you are disruptive in my courtroom, in other words, I'm in charge, not you. I will have no problem removing you from this courtroom. Do you understand that? And Trump said, yes. And and I want you back in December. Um, and I will talk about the December date in a minute, which is the new the next time they'll all be back in front of the courtroom. Doesn't mean the next time anything's going to happen in the case. It's the next time they'll be together in the courtroom. And I'll talk about why it's December or why I think it's December. But he said, uh, I understand your, your, your lawyers may want to have you zoom in, but I got to treat you like any other criminal defendant. So I want you back here in December. Do you understand? He said, yes. And that was the end. Donald Trump you know, uh, acted a couple of times like, oh, I don't want to see the indictment. He handed it to Joe Tacopina. Uh, I'm, I'm above the indictment. I don't want to see it. Then he grabbed it back because he wanted to actually read what was in it. And then, it, and then people are complaining, Ben, about uh, why December? Why December? Why is this going faster? Because the judge understands that there's got to be a lot of motion practice and likely appeals in this case because of the um, the nature of the prosecution and, the, frankly, the nature of the defendant. And so nine months between now and then allows the, the inevitable motion to dismiss the indictment practice, the motion to attack the grand jury minutes and the, and the entire charging process that was used by Alvin Bragg, um, and then get through an appellate process, one or two levels of appeal in New York, either the first level appeal at the first department for Manhattan or at the ultimate appeal for the highest level court in New York, which is the Court of Appeals. And then that's about nine months. It takes about six or eight months to get all that done. And then let's be right back here in December when all appeals are done. The indictment is, I've, res I've resolved the indictment issues. They make a motion to move the case to Staten Island and the judge, I'm sure, will deny it. Um, we'll watch Donald Trump to see if he needs to be gagged from now until then. So it's about the right amount of time. I know everybody's upset um, about, you know, let's go to trial in three months, but none of these cases are going to trial in three months. I just did a hot take on a, on a guy who interfered with the 2016 election and Hillary Clinton getting elected, and he just got convicted in a court of law now, seven years later. So Things are moving as about as, as quickly as they need to. And there's a lot of work for both sides, prosecution and defense between now and December. I think what the judge wants, Ben, Judge Mershon wants, is he wants sort of everything cleared away. And all he's got to do is deal with setting the trial and all of that. In the meantime, 
Trump leaves leaves the courtroom and goes right back at a press conference or whatever he did in that ballroom, attacking the the uh, the judge, his his surrogates attacking and doxing daughters of the judge and family members of the judge. And let me just leave it on this and turn it back to you. Most courts and most judges run for election. Some at the highest level in some states are appointed by the governor, but even that is political. Most judges, and in New York especially, Florida too, California, I believe as well, they run for office, usually under a party flag, either they're Democrats, Republicans, or they're independents. So to say he's a Democrat or this prosecutor who's also an elected position is a Democrat, right? That doesn't mean you have to align only Republican prosecutors, as one of our producers said today, uh, Salty. Are we at the world now where only Republicans can prosecute Republicans and Republican judges can hear those cases and Democrats, Democrats? No, that's not how our justice system works. And I'm sorry that everybody's just waking up on the far, far MAGA right to understand that we have an elected judiciary where there are Democrats that serve in office as law enforcement prosecutors and on the bench, but that's the world that we live in. Just like we have to put up on the other side of the aisle with you know, Clarence Thomas, we'll talk about it later, You know, um, being in bed with mega MAGA uh, donors for the last 20 years, along with his wife. And I'd push back on that slightly, though, because what we should have to deal with, it is okay that there are judges or and justices who come from the side of Republicans, just as it is okay that there are judges and justices who come who are Democrat, uh, who are backed by the Democratic Party. The issue with Clarence Thomas, though, of course, is that is exactly what should be avoided. That is not just unethical, that not only is he appointed by a Republican, uh, but the fact that he's receiving millions and millions of dollars in gifts from Republican donors, tainting his ability to be a fair and impartial judge. I mean, set aside the mere fact that uh, the appearance of impropriety is something that should be avoided on the bench. You've got Justice Clarence Thomas just out there taking private jets and uh, private jet flights and pri- and super yacht trips to, to you know you know traveling around on exotic islands and wearing T-shirts that has the name of the yacht, the Michaela, and going to these exclusive retreats like each and every each and every summer. I mean, yeah, they're right there for those watching. That's that's one of the ways ProPublica was able to identify this on Clarence Thomas. He uh, he wears the shirts of all of the summer trips that they go on. That has a photo of the yacht. So it would say the Indonesia trip, the Greek island trip, so on uh, and so forth. Popak, I'll make this observation too about the December date and about the speed in which this the Trump case is moving at. I can just say from my own experience, it's actually moving faster than other criminal cases that I'm aware about. You mentioned the case that was in the, uh, you know, that, that relates to election disinformation uh, in the Hillary Clinton election that now just went to trial. Um, I'm familiar with cases that five, seven, eight, 10 years before they go to trial. And the judges now are on to Donald Trump's delay tactics, though. So they are moving these cases much quicker. I do not expect these Trump cases to go that far. Like, I would expect uh, this case 
to, you know, probably go to trial sometime in 2024. That December date, I think, is going to be a, a meaningful date and the court's going to have a very short leash. The same way uh, Judge Arthur Ngoron had a very short leash. Judge Arthur Ngoron, uh, another Manhattan judge in the uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James civil fraud case, who set a October 2nd, 2023 uh, trial date and said, this is etched in stone. You're not moving this at all. We know your dilatory and delay tactics. This ain't moving. And by the way, all of these dates actually line up very nicely because be before that December hearing, what we're going to see going back to your whiteboard there, Popak, is you're going to have the E. Jean Carroll case and you're going to see a lot more of Donald Trump sitting in a court with his arms crossed like that um, because he's likely going to have to show up to that trial. Um, and then you're going to see the New York Attorney General Letitia James case as well, um, where that civil fraud case, there's a criminal investigation taking place as well um, by Alvin Bragg uh, into the, the criminal conduct about that. So depending on how the jury rules there, I think one of the things Alvin Bragg is waiting on for those bigger charges, the fraudulent valuation and the tax crimes that Trump engaged in is what's going to happen with that jury uh, in the New York AG case, how are they going to rule? Uh, and is Donald Trump, and if there's a finding that Trump engaged in this fraudulent valuation scheme in the New York AG case, I think that's when you'll see the criminal charges also brought by Alvin Bragg, which are even more serious criminal charges here. I know you got one final observation, yeah. Popak, and then we'll hit the next Yeah, the, the checkerboard you're talking about is really, really important. First to indict doesn't mean first to try. And then we've got the federal versus pardon me, federal versus state interaction here. I'm, I've done a hot take and will do a hot take on even if you indicted first, who do I think is going to try first? And where does Jack Smith, will, who may come out of the shoot third, but he may end up being first in line for his prosecutions, depending upon what he does. The other thing about the December date for Trump that I want to mention is I think it leaves plenty of time for what I predict will be a superseding indictment or an amended indictment. Because if you, there's a little bit of a mismatch and Karen Freeman Agnifilo, our co-anchor, did a nice job talking about it on Wednesday's show between the statement of facts, which is not technically the indictment and the indictment, which is the 34 felony charges, all for business record fraud and tampering of the books and records, the check register, the general ledger. And the way they get it up to a felony is the second fraud, the second crime, which can be a misdemeanor, <clears throat> pardon me, as well, is um, either tax evasion, if you read the statement of claim, the statement of facts, tax evasion, or election fraud state or federal, or something like that. The reason I'm a little bit loose on it is because the statement of facts talks about conspiracy, but there's no conspiracy count yet in the indictment. The statement of facts talks about tax issues, tax fraud and manipulation by taking a deduction for legal expenses paid to Michael Cohen when it wasn't really that, it was a payment to Stormy Daniels. So eventually, I think we're going to have, as this case develops over the next period of time, as the statement of facts merges into um, the uh, indictment, as things that Alvin Bragg said in his own press conference about conspiracy end up in the indictment, I think we're going to see a conspiracy count. I think we're going to see more flesh on the bone in the indictment. But he doesn't have to do that. 
Everyone's like, it's so bare bones and skeleton, the, the skeletal, the indictment. Right. Because you want to have a very small target to shoot at when the other side moves to dismiss the indictment. Put in your bare minimum, put the rest over in the statement of facts. But I think, Ben, before December, we'll see a superseding amended indictment that will bring in things like a conspiracy count. In addition to right now, we have the 34 counts of falsifying of business records, essentially each of the checks being separate counts. And that's, you know, ultimately, and by the way, Karen Friedman Agnifilo predicted that perfectly. And you think the superseding indictment will add additional conspiracy counts. So there may be additional counts added even before that December date. And so we will keep everybody uh, posted there. Some big wins by special counsel Jack Smith that really spelled big trouble for Donald Trump. I want to talk about that. But first, let's take this quick break. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. The last few years especially have been a wild ride filled with my own personal self-realizations and growth. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding. Because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I personally have benefited directly from therapy, allowing me to talk through and work through experiences in my past that were unknowingly having a major impact on the way I go about my day-to-day. Therapy is an incredibly helpful tool for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Over time, I've truly learned to become the best version of me. And look, therapy is for everyone, not just people who've experienced major trauma, because what you're working through matters. Never discount that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash legal AF today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash legal AF. Popak, you sold me on that better. You, you should be their spokesperson, not just for legal AF, but in, I, I didn't in need, general. You I didn't should be need their it. national spokesperson. I didn't need it until the Trump era started. <laughs> <laughs> and I, then I really needed it. Well, now we got special counsel Jack Smith, which, you know, in, in its way is very cathartic as well. And so special <laughs> counsel Jack Smith had some really big wins this week in the multiple criminal investigations of Donald Trump. I mean, you know, it it felt like a footnote this week. But when you think about it, you've got a former vice president of the United States saying, I am not going to appeal any further a prior federal court order which required me uh, to testify before a criminal grand jury against a former president. Okay, like, let's just former vice president testifying against a former president in a criminal grand jury. And that Normal. seemed like a footnote in the week. And <laughs> we, we, we've we talked about it here on Legal AF, just what that was even about. So um, Pence tried to argue that under the speech and debate clause, which basically gives uh, a, an immunity to uh, members of the House of Representatives and senators who engage in legitimate legislative activity, from having to testify in any other forum other than what their normal duties and roles are 
um, as members of the House of Representatives and, and, and the Senate. In other words, they don't have to testify in other proceedings at all if they were engaged in legitimate legislative activity. And Pence argued, well, I, the Constitution says that vice presidents are also the president of the Senate, and there's this ceremonial role, so I should be treated as a senator, and my conduct was legitimate legislative activity, so I don't want to testify at all because I'm basically like a senator. What we said here on Legal AF when he made that objection um, is it's ridiculous. But what we said the judge was probably going to do, and this is exactly what the judge did, is said, look, for the small time period where you have this ceremonial role as president of the Senate, where you were just counting the electoral votes on January 6th, sure, you don't have to testify um, about what that what that process was like. But that's a pretty contained process. We all know what happened there. And that's not really the information that Jack Smith or I think the public really cares about. And what Judge Bozberg, who's the new chief judge in uh D.C. federal courts who oversees these grand juries who made this very big ruling. It was really the first big ruling by Chief Judge Boesberg. You may all recall we used to talk about the rulings from Judge Beryl Howell, who used to be the chief judge, and uh, Judge Beryl Howell's term as being the chief judge ended. Uh, judge uh, Jeb Boesberg became the new chief judge. Boesberg's an Obama appointee. And Boesberg basically said, sure, for that time period where you are in that ceremonial role, you don't have to testify about that. But all of the other communications with Donald Trump leading to the insurrection after the insurrection, when you were, you know, in your role as a vice president, you have to testify there. There's no way. Pence didn't assert executive privilege. Trump asserted executive privilege and Trump lost that one, you know, right away. That was not a, a winner of an argument. Um, and Judge Bozberg said, you got to testify about everything else. So Pence, and that's what Jack Smith wanted anyway. So Pence is going to be testifying very soon before a uh, criminal grand jury in Washington, D.C., which is monumental. And as we've been saying here on Legal AF, you don't get that ruling of Pence unless you're diligent and build this case brick by brick by brick. And I know there's so many people who were frustrated about the pace and the speed of this, but just think if you didn't have all of these other wins that we've been talking about on Legal AF now for over a year, right? Like if you don't get former Vice President Pence's top advisors to testify, right? Like his former Chief of Staff, Mark Short, and his former General Counsel, Greg Jacob, right? If you don't get the wins where Donald Trump tried to block the testimony of his former top lawyers like Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin. If you don't kind of keep getting those wins and building and building and building, you don't get the testimony of former Vice President Mike Pence. And so for anybody out there who was saying, you know, Merrick Garland or Jack Smith, they should have filed this nine months ago. Would you really want to have sacrificed the testimony of all of the key witnesses? You, you don't want their testimony? Like, there is a practical aspect of being a prosecutor and being a trial lawyer where you have to introduce admissible evidence. And not only do you have to introduce admissible evidence, when you're in front of a jury, you've got to present them with the best evidence. And there are jury instructions that just even ask the jury, hey, if a party was capable of bringing a witness and they did not, you can hold that against them. 
And you better be damn sure if you didn't get the testimony of Pence or Cipollone or Philbin or Hirschman or any of these people or some of the big wins that Popak, you're going to talk about some other wins that the uh, special counsel Jack Smith had. I guarantee you what Trump's lawyers would have said is, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Jack Smith had the opportunity to bring these individuals in, but he rushed the case. He rushed it and he did not bring in. Therefore, there is reasonable doubt you will have to find. You have no choice but to find uh, Donald Trump not guilty here. And then imagine the fallout from that. So I just want to put it in that context. But Popak, give us some of the other big news and wins by special counsel. Yeah, you're, so, you're so right about all of that. I mean, when you have 1,000 people that you're prosecuting, another 1,000 that the Department of Justice has told Chief Judge Boasberg that they're going to be bringing, we're not done with the Jan 6 indictments. The first 950 are in, are in. half of them have already been convicted. 40 different trials by the Department of Justice. And then you've got these other prosecutions. Jack Smith and his people are like 40 and 0, 40 and 0 in front of some combination of Beryl Howell and uh, Boesberg. Uh, well, now one with Boesberg on all of these major issues. He could not have done that, as you said, Ben, a year and a half ago or two years ago. And he will, and it's not just about getting an indictment. Indictments are important. It's about winning a case at trial. And so you have to have the evidence now developed so that you can do that. And that's what he's doing. And the last thing on Pence, then I'll move over to the seven other people that have to be paraded in to the grand jury now who fought and lost and were at an appellate court told him, get into the grand jury because you're testifying in record time. All the things that we know from the Jan 6 committee and even Pence's own memoir, his own book, he's going to have to testify to under oath to a grand jury about the pressure that Donald Trump placed on him. Um, the threats against him by Donald Trump, calling him the P word, saying that the hanging of Mike Pence was an appropriate reaction, trying to get him to, to participate in the fake elector scandal um, and scheme. Um, the mental state of Donald Trump leading into Jan 6th, during Jan 6th, and after Jan 6th, um, his conversations with these lawyers around Donald Trump related to these issues, the Secret Service trying to whisk um, uh, Pence away and Pence refusing so he could go do his job and 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 certify the election. That's all coming out in front of the grand jury. Plus, whatever, whatever Jack Smith's prosecutors have developed from other witnesses and other videos and social media and witness testimony that they're going to put in front of um, put in front of him and that have his fingerprints on it. So um, as you said, we can't it's hard to keep ca calling everything blockbuster and breakthrough and and breaking, but this is a big thing. First time in our history, a vice president will effectively be testifying against a president of the United States in a criminal matter. And now, right behind him, because a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court, a different three-judge panel. We talked about one related to Evan Corcoran two weeks ago related to what we think is the Mar-a-Lago grand jury, where they in 72 hours record time had the both sides brief the issue, the Department of Justice and, and uh, Trump's lawyers and Corcoran's lawyers and make the ruling. This went even faster. The DC, as Karen Freeman Ignipolo said on one of our podcasts, yeah, it's just the appellate court has had enough with Donald Trump and is now giving him hours to do what normally would take months. You want to appeal? Sure. You got 24 hours to do it. Let's go. And so they literally gave Trump filed an emergency appeal to stop Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, Stephen Miller, his national security team of Robert O'Brien, John Ratcliffe, and Ken Cuccinelli 
um, and others. And the three-judge panel, which was two Obama and one Trump, which was um, Millett, Judge Millett, Judge um, uh, uh, Wilkins, and Judge Katsis, we, what we think is in a 3-0 decision, said you got two hours, Department of Justice, to tell us what your position is. Literally hmm. two hours, Ben, and the Department of Justice was ready ready, working on those typewriters, those computers, two hours they filed, and the appellate court took a look at it and said, right, emergency appeal denied. And all of you guys get your stuff, get your butts into the chairs in the grand jury. And that's been happening since the end of last week into next week. And none of them apparently are going to be taking an appeal. And neither is Donald Trump, because we keep talking about over the course of 200 episodes or more of Legal AF about the right-wing MAGA majority, supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court. And that is true. And really bad things have happened because of it, whether we talk about women's rights, abortion, the rights of uh, on immigration policy, and all the other terrible rulings in criminal justice and civil rights that have come out of this court. But the one place where Donald Trump does not have home court advantage is everything related to his presidency, his papers, Mar-a-Lago, testimony, that apparently uh, even the right wing of the Supreme Court is not in his favor. And now Donald Trump on at least two separate occasions in the last month has said pass when it comes to trying to do an appeal to the Supreme Court. So you have, for example, former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. You got former director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe. You got former national security advisor, Robert O'Brien. You've got former top aide, Stephen Miller. You got former deputy chief of staff and social media director, Dan Scavino. You got former aide, Nick Luna. You got former aide, John McKinty. You got former DHS official, Ken Cuccinelli, who, by the way, already has done, has testified now before the grand jury after uh, that ruling. I believe he testified middle of last week. But the reason also why that order is handed out so quickly right there is because all of this precedent has already been established that Trump is not entitled to executive privilege, right? He's trying to argue that he's got this executive privilege claim, that that's what keeps these communications confidential. And the law has been very clear and has now been ruled on with these prior objections that he's made before this batch of witnesses that no, number one, You're the former president. You're not the current president. So on that basis alone, you shouldn't be able to assert executive privilege. You know, there's a narrow, narrow, narrow line of kind of undeveloped case law where it is possible a former president can assert executive privilege in interbranch disputes, maybe. This isn't an interbranch dispute. It's the current executive branch wants information, and it's a criminal investigation. So former executive can assert it against the current executive branch, where the current executive branch is not asserting executive privilege. And even if Trump was able to assert it, even if Biden, let's say Biden wanted to assert it, which Biden's not asserting it, Biden Biden is saying, um, why would I assert executive privilege where the assertion relates to someone trying to overthrow our Constitution? It's the exact opposite of what the constitutional duties are of a United States president. But even assuming you could assert it, it can be uh, overruled if the Department of Justice shows a compelling need and a compelling interest in their criminal investigation. And of course, they're able to show it there. So It's a real frivolous objection at this point to even assert executive privilege. But going back to what I said before, 
brick by brick by brick. You have to build these wins in order to get to the place where we are today, where the federal courts just like to Trump. Stop wasting our time. These people got to testify. So just imagine again that you go do trial for everybody who was like, we need to file this case nine months ago. Okay, so you want to go to trial without Pence, without Meadows, without Ratcliffe, without O'Brien, without Miller, without Luna, without McKenty, without Cuccinelli? Okay, that is the height of prosecutorial malpractice if that's what you wanted to do. But that is why, look, Legal AF is an important show because we have to really talk about those types of issues because it's very easy for me to just say to you, yeah, you know, screw it. Garland's taking way too long. Screw it. But I'm but what and and to some extent I feel the pain. I I do. I I I wish it went faster. But what Garland had been doing and then what Jack Smith did when he took over is you've got to build these things to where we are today where you can't poke any holes in it because Donald Trump is the ultimate hole poker and he's got all his people out there trying to poke holes and 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 do all of that. So this is great, great prosecutorial work. Popak, I want to move on to the next big DC Circuit Court of Appeals victory right now. Um, and we talked about this here as well, this obstruction of an official proceeding charge. It is a critical, critical charge in the toolkit of federal prosecutors. And you had this Trump appointed judge, Carl Nichols. I think this is going to be a theme in this episode, because when we talk about the ruling by the Trump judge in Texas, who just uh, blocked the FDA's 2000 approval of Mifepristone, a Trump appointed judge. This is why elections have consequences. And by the way, you go back and you look at those debates between Trump and Hillary Clinton. She warned about every one of these things over and over again in those debates. But Popak, you want to walk us through what, why this DC Circuit Court of Appeals yeah. ruling was so important. And also the composition of this panel was interesting though, because it did seem like the Biden judge here, Justice Pan on the Circuit Court of Appeals, got one of the Trump judges, though, to move over into, and a very young Trump judge, one of these really inexperienced Trump judges who's basically like my age, who is, do you think he's two years older than me, who Donald Trump appointed? Um, who, who, by the way, at least I like went to trials like this lawyer. I don't think had any trial experience, you know, when he was appointed by by Donald. And he has this position in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But Judge Pan, a Biden appointee, I think, moved this judge in the right place. Can you discuss what happened? Yeah, well, let's start at the top um, and, I'll, and we'll talk about that judge, Judge Walker, whose main experience before he took the bench and being appointed by Trump was to be the apologist for uh, Brett Kavanaugh. When Brett Kavanaugh's candidacy um, uh, was in was taken on a lot of water for sexual assault charges <clears throat> that were being made against him, he went on TV <clears throat> 115 times to defend Brett Kavanaugh. So he's a far right person. But Pan, who's the the first um, Asian Pacific woman to ever serve in that position, appointed by Biden, uh, who wrote the majority decision, she you know she had to get another vote and Katsis who is a right MAGA Trumper, was never going to go her way. So she found a way to thread the needle and get um, Walker to join her. The reason this is so important is because every judge in every judge 
in the D.C. Uh, circuit that is hearing all of these Jan 6 cases, these 500 or so that are scheduled ultimately either settle by plea or go to trial, every one of them except for Judge Nichols has found that the there, there's two giant charges, two big hammers the Department of Justice uses um, in the process that are appropriately charged. One is seditious conspiracy and sedition and all of the major penalties related to that. But they reserve that for a small group, maybe 15 or 20 total of the entire 2000 that attacked the Capitol who really fit fit the bill, fit the elements of seditious conspiracy. The, the second biggest claim that they use in the appropriate uh, matters is the obstruction of official proceeding 18 USC 1512 of our code, which really came out of the Enron scandal, but has been applied in all sorts of criminal cases. If somebody uses obstructive conduct <clears throat> or corruptly obstructs the proceeding, the proceeding being the insurrection, the attack on the Capitol stopped the count of the electoral count and the certification of the electoral count under the 12th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, as we all know well from the Jan 6 Committee and the video, all members of Congress had to flee for their lives, Republican included, belly crawling, army crawling to get out of the room, being whisked away by, by whatever was left of the Capitol Police that wasn't fighting on the steps and in the tunnels and in the portico to get them to safety, including Mike Pence, who ran off, and there's video of all that, and Josh Hawley and all of that. Okay, while that was going on, what wasn't going on was the certification of the election at that very moment. And so the Department of Justice and every judge but Judge Nichols Agreed. Not only that, there's already been convictions. There's people that have both pled guilty to this charge, which is a 20-year felony, up to 20-year felony conviction, or have had a jury of their peers find that they are, they violated the statute. So if Judge Nichols' position held, and he took a very narrow reading that you and I talked about at the time, Ben, you know, eight, <laughs> yeah. nine months ago, took a very narrow reading that the only way this particular obstruction count could apply is literally if they interfered with the physical ballots, like the pieces of paper going into the box, being certified and gaveled by, by the clerk and by Pence. And if you're not like getting near or touching, obstructing those ballots, those pieces of paper, then whatever you're doing outside, even though you blew up the room and you stopped the proceeding, that's not going to be obstruction. And that was such a narrow interpretation of what that really said, literally, that we were all scratching our head like, what is he talking about? That can't be the only scenario in which that statute applies. And the three-judge panel, including now Judge Walker, a Trumper who sided with Judge Pan two to one to vote that Nichols was wrong, said, look, if you look at the statute, there's three interpretations that are being offered. The government's interpretation, which is the most reasonable one, is that the words on the page say what they mean. They mean what they say. They say that if it's an obstruction, um, obstructive conduct, um, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, conceals or otherwise obstructs or impedes any official proceeding. Well, that's easy. 
the Congress certifying the election's official proceeding. The actions outside were intended and in fact did stop and impede that proceeding from happening. How else do you explain everybody running and crawling out of that chamber? Okay, so that's that was the DOJ's position. We, we stopped there. Read the language. The, uh, the opponent, the three defendants, all of whom uh, were charged, at least one charge, of actually uh, fighting with and beating Capitol Police. So these, these were the worst of the worst. They said, well, we think it's even, we, we think it has to be like impeding the ballot counting or any other type of counting, any kind of evidence impairment. And there's no evidence <laughs> impairment. And so the court said, well, I see you're trying to make an evidence impairment or ballot impairment, but that's not what it says. And of those three interpretations, the most reasonable one is the Department of Justice. And that's the one we're going with. Now, look, there was 127 pages and we're boiling it down to make it sort of interesting. And you can follow here on Legal AF. But the rea- the result is the following. If they had sided with Nichols and if this three judge panel by majority vote had ruled that that obstruction count for that, that scenario couldn't be used for any Jan 6th prosecution, that not only means future indictments, that means everybody who got convicted of it, or maybe even pled guilty, we'd have to talk about that, would have their, possibly have their convictions vacated and and uh, maybe a do-over in a trial if there was a trial setting. So it would have been disastrous, apocalyptic results, and the Department of Justice would have lost a giant hammer in their arsenal because we're not done. Everybody forgets it's we, the first thousand are in, but the Department of Justice has said we're still working round the clock. And Ben, I learned something new from the briefing. Um, maybe we could put the cover of the brief up. There is under Merrick Garland a capital siege section that has been created at the Department of Justice. And the lawyers that argued this brief are the chief and an attorney for the capital siege section of the Department of Justice. That means there's a group of people that all they do morning, noon, and night, from the moment they get up in the morning to the time they hit their their head on the pillow, is nothing but capital siege investigation, prosecution. And there's another thousand people who think they got away with it. They haven't been captured yet and arrested yet, but the Department of Justice is coming for them because we know it, because they told the chief judge, get ready, we're going to need more resources. We may bring another thousand through over the next year. You think about special counsel Jack Smith's toolkit also in his criminal investigations of Donald Trump. If he had lost that ability to bring an obstruction of official proceeding count against Donald Trump, that's likely to be one of the main charges ultimately brought against Donald Trump. And Salty, if you pull that statute up one more time, this 18 U.S.C. 1512C, which is the obstruction of official uh, proceeding, which says this is what it says. Whoever corruptly won, alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or two, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So an important point here is that it carries with it a 20-year prison sentence, which is one of the most potent weapons uh, other than a seditious conspiracy charge that could be used by prosecutors. But when you go through the statute, 
when you look at how Judge Carl Nichols uh, made the argument, it, it actually just makes no sense. You ha- you would have to take out the word or and then literally cross out subsection two and just read it as the only thing that exists is subsection one about dis- and then take out some of the other words and just say whoever corruptly destroys a document uh, w- would be would be subject to the obstruction of an official proceeding charge. That's just not what it says, so much so that the insurrectionists who were making the argument to Judge Carl Nichols and who made the argument before the Court of Appeals, even they, and this is what you were pointing out, Popak, they didn't argue that Judge Carl Nichols was right because they knew that or that was a, I'm not sure how we want, re, this was their honest thinking. Not sure how we won that one. So I don't think we could go in on this whole document. Even thing. the court, or- Pan said it was a half-hearted defense of Judge Nichols. They went off in a different direction. They went in the direction that they went is they were just saying, hey, um, if you just have obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding, what does that really mean? You know, it has to be narrower than just anything. Like, And the, and the court was like, not, no, it's not anything like what you did on January 6th is exactly the conduct that that statute is trying to protect against. And it's exactly the type of conduct that, um, you know, that that is being criminalized. And you mentioned these insurrectionists were among some of the worst, most violent and vile and yeah. violent of the insurrectionists. But Popak, speaking which, which, of- Which, by the way, many of them, just to, to round out this circle, square the circle, many of them are part of the Jan 6 choir because they're still sitting in, in uh, the jail in D.C. because they because of what they did, including at least two of the three of them. The reason Nichols got wrapped around the axle in his analysis, because he wanted, it was, as you like to say in the past, Ben, it was a results-driven decision. He wanted to get rid of this um, and didn't want the Department of Justice to use it, so he tried to justify it. It was originally passed to fight white-collar crime. When Enron went down, uh, the big scandal uh, of a phony company that wasn't really generating proper revenue and was hiding it from its investors, they were also investigated by Congress. And before they could get to Congress, they destroyed um, documents that should have been produced to Congress and otherwise. And it was that destruction of the documents that Nichols got all wrapped up in applying it here. But that's not what the statute says. The statute doesn't say in its preamble or by people that passed it, Congress, um, this will only apply to a similar corporate matter where a company or a corporation. No, it's on the books. And it gets to be applied to as long as the elements are met to all different scenarios that may come up, including the one that we couldn't even have contemplated back when this was passed after Enron, which was that there was going to be 2,000 Americans who were going to siege and attack the Capitol in order to stop the, the peaceful transfer of power. But there was a there was a uh, a crime on the books that fit the bill when it came time to the charging document for the indictment. And, you know, speaking, I was talking about how, you know, these insurrectionists are so vile and, you know, speaking of just vile, vile things, I mean, this Trump appointed judge in Texas who 
gave this tortured interpretation of the Administrative Procedures Act and extended statute of limitations into 2023 to block the FDA's approval of the abortion pill from 2000. And then shortly thereafter, thankfully, um, a judge issued an order basically saying the exact opposite, compelling the FDA to make sure that they do not change a thing regarding the abortion pill. And and so you have these conflicting rulings. I want to break that down. And, and just how is it that a Trump-appointed federal judge can do this? How could one federal judge have this power? Lots of people are even just asking that more basic question. We'll talk about that right after this break. Let's take a quick break to talk about our next partner, Zbiotics. Now, if you're like me, you've probably skipped a workout because of drinks the night before. Like, it happens. But if you're committed to your healthy routine, you need Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol, drink responsibly, and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. Now, I can't lie, after we hit 1 million subscribers, I may have partied a little bit too much that night. But luckily, I knew I had Zbiotics. Now, as instructed, I drank a bottle of Zbiotics before any alcohol, and I was amazed at just how good I felt the next day. Give Zbiotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com/legalaf to get 15% off your first order when you use legalaf at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. So remember, head to zbiotics.com slash legalaf and use the code legalaf at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode. Our next partner is AG1 Biathletic Greens. Now, I take AG1 Biathletic Greens literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted better gut health, boosted energy, immune system support, and I hated taking pills and vitamins and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. I take AG1 in the morning before working out, and it makes me feel incredible and just ready to take on my day. When I take AG1, I know I'm doing something good for my body, like giving my body the nutrition that it craves and covering my nutritional bases. I've tried a ton of different supplements out there, but this is different, and the ingredients are super high quality. I got started with AG1 because I used to take all these different pills and gummies, and frankly, what I was taking was expensive, and I didn't even know if it was good for me. But with AG1 Biathletic Greens, I know that what I'm consuming has the best ingredients and also tastes delicious. AG1 makes it easier for you to take the highest quality supplements, period. When I started my AG1 journey, very quickly I noticed that it helps me with, you know, improved overall digestion, my energy levels were up, and just overall I was feeling great. It's just one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day, and it's a seamless and easy daily habit to maintain. 
The Midas Mighty asks me all the time, Jordy, how do you have so much energy to do these ad reads? Well, if I could only pick one thing, it's HE1 by Athletic Greens. Just one daily serving covers my day's nutritional basis and supports my long-term gut health with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust the product so much. If you're looking for a simpler, cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash legalaf. That's athleticgreens.com slash legalaf. Check it out. And now back to the video. Welcome back to Legal AF. Ben Micellis here with Michael Popak. On Friday, uh, two orders were handed down, conflicting dueling orders, one from a federal judge in the Northern District of Texas, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, a Trump appointee, another from a judge, a federal judge in the Eastern District of Washington State, Thomas Rice, an Obama appointee, um, that say completely conflicting things, meaning that this will uh, eventually likely be fast-tracked uh, to go before uh, the United States Supreme Court. First, this, this idea, though, is how can a federal judge issue a nationwide injunction? The short of it is that they actually have that power. A federal judge has the power one single federal judge sitting in the Eastern District of Texas or the Northern District of Texas or the Eastern District of Washington or whatever district court in any state has the power to issue nationwide injunctions. It has been criticized as a practice, but it is something that federal judges are permitted to do. So whether we like that or not, and I don't think we like that, but that is something that they are permitted to do. Um, but just so you know, that is a power that they have. Um, another piece of information about Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, um, he's the only judge, and Popak, correct me if I'm wrong here, who sits in this specific division within this district in the Northern you're, District of you're, Texas. You're 95% right. Every 95% of the cases in Amarillo, Texas division get assigned to Kazmarek. I think there's one senior status judge that takes a very small amount. So you got a 95% hit rate if you're trying to forum shop and place your case in front of Kazmarek. And so by forum shopping, that means exactly what it sounds, right? Like if you are a right wing group that wants to make sure that a woman can control her body, what you do is you shop your case, literally, you file your case in this one area where pretty much, you know, you're going to get Judge Kosmeric and Judge Kosmeric has a history of saying some of the most despicable things about LGBTQ plus people. Um, he is stridently opposed to women having control over their bodies. He is, he is handmaid's tale extreme and he is someone who Trump appointed and the right wing uh, senators pushed through to uh, a confirmation. And so this case went before him. Um, we've been hearing about the oral arguments and it was kind of fait accompli, right? We, we almost knew the outcome once this case was brought before this judge. And on Friday, we got the ruling that he ruled that the 2000 order from the FDA 2023 years ago that the FDA's approval of mifepristone would be blocked, the abortion pill would be blocked. 
We know for a long time it's been safe. We know its efficacy has been proven. In fact, one of the way the judge dealt with the statute of limitations in the order, which to kind of challenge an administrative order, there's a six-year statute of limitations. The further findings of its efficacy over time, and as more kind of generic drugs were brought to the market later and further approvals were made because over the years, more science has developed the efficacy of the drug and how safe it is. Well, Judge Kaczmarek basically used that to toll or continue the statute of limitations to basically say, that's why I can go back to 2000 to block the FDA because the FDA also talked about this in 2017 and 2019 and 2021. But the but I want to go back to what they did in 2000, and I'm going to say that that was arbitrary and capricious administrative rulemaking. So me, the judge, I'm going to substitute my knowledge for the actions of an administrative agency, the FDA, and their rulemaking procedures, and why. And this part of the analysis, Popak, I don't think has really been discussed anywhere, because you really got to get into the 67-page order uh, to see it. But this is basically what the analysis hinges on when he's saying that the FDA acted arbitrarily and capriciously in 2000 for uh, approving this drug. And this is the portion right here where in the order it goes, when the FDA originally approved it, the agency relied upon subpart H to place certain restrictions on the manufacturer's distribution of the drug product to assure its safe use. Thus, to satisfy part H, FDA deemed pregnancy a serious or life-threatening illness and concluded that mifepristone provided meaningful therapeutic benefit to patients over existing treatments because the FDA characterized pregnancy as being something that is serious or life-threatening. And then the judge goes, but pregnancy is not that. The judge, this male judge goes, pregnancy is just a normal physiological state most women experience one or more times during their childbearing years. And on that basis, the judge said, FDA should not have made this rule to satisfy this subpart H because pregnancies, they're just normal physiological things that women have to go through and they are not serious uh, physical conditions. And, and on that basis, you know, the, the analysis gets a little more developed than that, but the court basically says it's arbitrary and capricious. Um, so I am not, we're going to rule that when the FDA put forward that rule, they didn't have the power to do it, thus blocking it. But Popak, it didn't end there. Then there was a, a ruling from the judge from the Eastern District of Washington. So can you talk about these conflicting rulings now yeah. and what it means? Well, let me start back with Kaczmarek for a minute and the forum shopping that's going on. The Department of Justice has called this out and has actually filed motions in front of Kaczmarek to argue there is no good reason why cases like the medicated abortion case is in front of a Texas judge in Amarillo. For example, um, uh, basically abortion is outlawed in the state of Texas by SB8. I mean, it's down to like six weeks or less. Um, the, the plaintiff here, which is this made up entity called the Alliance of Hippocratic Medicine, 
a doctor near Amarillo who says his practice of medicine will somehow be impacted by the ruling. He lives in a state and operates in a state where they don't even allow the pills. They don't allow the abortion pills and they don't allow abortion. So why are we in Amarillo? Why aren't we in Maryland where the FDA sits? Or why aren't we at least somewhere where the abortion pills are dispensed? Why? Because there is a friendly judge sitting in Amarillo where you have a 95% chance of getting him. The judge should never have taken this case. It should have been removed from his courtroom, but he doesn't want it. He wants the case. He wants to do policymaking, which is really for Congress to do, not for judges to do. And he wants to do it in the areas of women's rights, LGBTQ+, um, all the things that he was against when he was um, the general counsel for a super right-wing entity called the First Liberty Institute, which got on the on the uh, on the uh, hit parade, the claim to fame, because they're the ones that opposed Obamacare having an, a, a a right of a woman to get contraception care. They wanted that removed from Obamacare, and he's been on the wrong side of a number of decisions at the Supreme Court level who have slapped him back and said, you shouldn't even have made these rulings. There's even a very good argument, Ben, that will come up on the appeal. I'll talk about that next when I talk about the Washington state ruling that happened four hours after his ruling, is that in order to find that there is um, that there is a live controversy or a case that's appropriately before a U.S. Constitution Article Three federal judge, the, 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 first, the first key into the courthouse the first ticket in the courthouse, you got to have standing. You got to have an injury that's personal to you that's different than the general public. What injury does a doctor sitting near Amarillo, Texas, in a state where there's no abortion allowed and no pills are being distributed, have to be able to bring this case? doesn't matter to Kazmarek because Kazmarek is just looking for any case to come before him so he can make these social policy, religious-infused rulings and then bind the whole country at a national band and, 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 and all the women related to it. He had, and in order to do that, he not only had to ignore the proper rulemaking 20 years ago by the FDA, but he'd have to ignore, uh, as the New York Times reported, um, really good reporting by Amy Walker, Malika Karana, and Ashley Wu, there's been over 100 scientific studies in 26 countries involving 124,000 medicated abortions. And they have found that in 99% of the cases, there are no serious complications. And in the course of the difference between childbirth, which Judge Kaczmarek, Ben, you just pointed out, says it's just an ordinary, normal thing that women do during their childbearing years, there is a higher risk of death in childbirth by four times than there is in medicated pregnancy using these pills. The chance of death in a medicated, uh, a medicated uh, abortion is 0.31% and it's 1.4% if you're, if you're having a baby, if you will. Out of the entire history of the use of these pills from 2000 until 2022, which was the last time, there have been 5.6 million women because these pills, medicated abortion, 57% of the time is the, is the method of choice for women to use for abortion, okay? Not going to a clinic. In, in those 5.6 million cases in 22 years, there were 28 deaths. 
It's terrible for the families of those 28 people, but statistically, it's 0.005%. Viagra is more dangerous. Tylenol is more dangerous. This is the drug that the judge has decided needs to be banned nationwide from women to use. The So he sits in the Fifth Circuit, which you and I have talked a lot about. That sits generally in New Orleans. That covers Texas. It is right-wing MAGA conservative. Some of the wackiest, craziest rulings come out of the Fifth Circuit. So the appeal that the, that the uh, Department of Justice says they are going to take is going to have to probably, I'll give you another example of, of another creative way, probably have to go to the Fifth Circuit first, take another loss there, and then an appeal to the Supreme Court. But the one wrinkle here is there is Washington State, which sits in the Ninth Circuit, which is the circuit that California also sits in. That judge said, not on my watch. In fact, I'm ordering in a 17-state um, injunction, a mandatory injunction, that the FDA continue to authorize, and, and it would be illegal under the, that order for them to stop um, uh, distributing uh, mefepristone and the sec basically what's called the second drug in the two-drug requirement for medicated abortions. So now you've got this competing district court judges. You don't have a competing split of the circuits, as we like to say, because the Ninth Circuit hasn't ruled yet and the Fifth Circuit hasn't ruled yet. If they were to rule, it's an automatic get to the Supreme Court for a ruling. But there is an ability to sort of try to skip the Fifth Circuit and even the Ninth Circuit and try to take an emergency appeal to this Supreme Court. The problem with that is it could be shot back to them as it was in SB8 in the, the Department of Justice's attempt to reverse the bounty hunter law that stopped abortion basically in the state of Texas, and that didn't work for them there. And they have already, having gone through SB8 and the Dobbs decision, and they know that Alito seems to be the moral, uh, the, the moral power on that court, and I'll talk about Alito in a minute, I'm not sure they think they got the numbers on the court. They're going to take the appeal anyway. They're going to set this case up. But I think the Department of Justice is is a little bit nervous, uh, and that's an understatement, about what will happen at the Supreme Court on this ruling. If they say, well, abortion is abortion, and there's no constitutional right to abortion, so uh, I don't know what the FDA is doing handing out abortion drugs, that could be the way that Supreme Court goes. Alito is, again, the kingmaker here. Um, Another, as you like to say, another white guy who can't produce a baby making decisions for women and their bodily autonomy. He is the uh, circuit court judge that is that sits over and is responsible for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So any uh, uh, emergency appeal to the Supreme Court would first go to Sam Alito, who could either make the decision on his own, thumbs up or thumbs down, or given all of the recent um, attacks on on the secret docket and the shadow docket, he could he could instead decide, and he probably will in this scenario, to turn it over to the full panel with full briefing of all nine justices on some sort of track, and maybe keep the orders in place. Although they're competing, he's going to have to choose. Well, he doesn't have to choose because he's only Fifth Circuit. Ninth Circuit is one of the Democratic uh, appointed. 
justices. So we're going to have to watch and play this out. This is going to move kind of quickly. You and I and Karen are going to have to do hot takes, keep everybody apprised of how rapidly these appeals are going to go. Because right now, women in America, where the where the uh, uh, the approach of choice is this uh, combination of drugs, 57% of the time, right now, they, their pharmacists and their doctors and mail order companies don't know what to do. At this moment, there is a woman who would like to use that that set of pills, but probably cannot because of what Kazmarek did last night and then Washington trying to bail it out with a ruling that seems to be completely counter to it that the Department of Justice is still trying to unpack how these two things come together and what their appeal should look like. I mean, in uh, Justice Samuel Alito, he wrote the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. He then gave speeches internationally bragging about it and joking about taking away a woman's right to uh, abortion care. Um, this is the individual who will be making the decision. This will ultimately go before the United States Supreme Court. And Popak, I, I agree with you. I, I don't see how this current radical right composition that just overturned Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision, they are now going to, they've seen the backlash, but frankly, they don't care. They don't care, you know, and, and, and I was thinking about this, and I think this is a good segue into this into this final segment on Justice Clarence Thomas here. You know, I, I had mentioned this on the Lights On podcast that I do with Jessica Denson, and I said, let's, let's propose this hypothetical, because we've talked about here, you mentioned earlier that in many cases, uh, certain state court judges, um, or usually in state court justice judges systems, those judges are elected, right? Federal judges are appointed uh, to lifetime appointments under Article Three. State court judges um, are appointed, um, but then also there are state court judges who run for election. It's, it's different in each state, um, but sometimes they're appointed and then they have to run in the next term. Sometimes they just have to run in general. It, it just it just depends on, on on the state and the and the timing of it. But for example, like in the Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court race, Janet Protasiewicz, who beat the MAGA Republican candidate, um, turning the balance of power to a Democratic controlled Wisconsin Supreme Court for the first time in 15 years. And one of the things that Janet Protasiewicz ran on, Democratic back candidate, was a woman should control her own body. And that obviously resonated with the voters. And she won by over 10 points in that race against the MAGA Republican Dan Kelly, who gave the most pathetic non-concession concession speech and basically said, my opponent, it doesn't even deserve the dignity of this, con this concession speech, just completely and pathetic. But, but think about this for a second. Federal judges who are appointed by um, presidents and they're confirmed by the Senate who have lifetime appointments. Um, what if they had to run for election? Okay. If you had a nationwide election for United States Supreme Court justices, do you think any, any of the right wing justices would win their seat? I could guarantee you with a hundred percent accuracy that if you gave the entire country gets to vote, you know, we're not talking about gerrymandered this. There would be a 9 to 0 decision that a woman should have the right to control her body. You would have 9 0 decisions that there should be common sense 
uh, gun control, common sense gun control. You would have nine to O decisions on all of these cases, right? And so you have to think about it because um, it, it, it's not a both sides issue. Like, let's just face it. Like, I, I try not to make the show like a political show, but I don't think these issues are political. Like we're talking about human decency. We're talking about compassion. We're talking about an ability of a woman to control her body. Like that's that shouldn't be a politicized issue. I know MAGA Republicans want to politicize freaking everything, including you mentioned the J6 choir, you know, with these terrorists who are in prison singing freaking songs with MAGA Republicans, which is utterly ridiculous, but it's not a both sides issue. Imagine for a second, if any of the Democratic appointed members of the Supreme Court were out having a ham sandwich with George Soros, were out there having, you know, co- you know, coffee with George Soros, you know, not receiving millions of dollars in gifts like uh, the MAGA Republicans um, are, are, are apparently okay with Clarence Thomas um, getting. Just imagine for a second that took place because the reporting that we have this week, and this is just completely, utterly despicable, this right-wing donor, Harlan Crow, who, by the way, um, he like inherited all his money. Harlan Crow. This is you know, it's 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 not like Harlan Crow is like some you know monumental real estate mogul. I think he got all his money from his dad and his grandpa. Um, that he's sounds got, familiar. Just so you know, he's got in his house. He's got and I, and I I he's one of the biggest Adolf Hitler collectors. So he has Adolf Hitler's paintings, original Adolf Hitler paintings. He's got statues of Hitler everywhere. He's got Nazi memorabilia, including Adolf Hitler's teapot engraved with swastika or Hitler initials in his house. Just I want to give you the, you know, this part really hasn't been reported about who Harlan Crow is, but he's the biggest Adolf Hitler collector, I think, in the world. Well, um, this is the individual who gave millions of dollars in gifts to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, putting him on his yacht, the uh, Michaela yacht. They would take trips to Indonesia, the Greek islands every single summer. He'd go on this big uh, private jet where like the costs of the private jet travel alone to take these international trips would be, you know, several hundred thousand dollars each way. Um, the yacht with private chefs and these retreats at these camps that were owned by uh, that were owned by Harlan Crow. And by the way, at these camps, you know, who were the types of people who were present? Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society, Mark Paletto, who was in the Trump administration, who was the general counsel uh, to the Office of Management and Budget, who was one of these people who serves as basically the kind of talking head for the Supreme Court saying that there shouldn't be any types of like ethical checks and balances on on what they do. That's the photograph. So for those watching on YouTube, that's the photograph in this Camp Topridge in the Adirondacks, which is owned by Harlan Crow, where he would bring all of his buddies, including uh, Clarence Thomas, like the head of the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo and Mark Paletta and all of these people. And they would, you know, a- according to Harlan Crow, 
never sought any uh, to influence anything at all. Never, never, never even sought to uh, talk about any judicial opinions or or anything like that. He's just a, a very good friend of mine, Clarence Thomas. And then Clarence Thomas would go around wearing these shirts that have all of the yacht trips that he went on over the past two decades. Now, Clarence Thomas's response to this, Popak, is that he thought this was legal, even though on the disclosure forms where you're supposed to check if there's a gift or no gift um, and you have to disclose gifts. It's a crime if you're a federal judge um, and you don't disclose gifts. So we have the disclose the actual disclosure form right there of Clarence Thomas where it says gifts and it is none. He checks none on each and every one of these over the years. He said, well, I believe, and by the way, it's a crime to lie on those federal forms. Uh, Clarence Thomas said, I, I just thought that it was hospitality. I, I didn't think that hospitality really was a gift. And I thought that this was perfectly legal. Okay. This is a judge. This is a person who's taken away a woman's right to control her body. This is a person who is allowing weapons of war to proliferate on our streets. This is a judge. That type of judgment is, is with someone who's on the highest court. And by the way, this is not a both sides issue, Popak. This is not, you're not seeing the Democratic backed Supreme Court judges out there taking these types of lavish trips. By the way, it's not unique to Justice Clarence Thomas, right? We know, for example, through a whistleblower who gave testimony when actual real oversight committee hearings were being held by the Democrats in the last term. Remember this person from Faith in Action, a, a reverend who was basically engaged in a oper an influence operation over the Supreme Court who talked about how they learned about the opinions before they would come out because they befriended people like, like Alito and lavished like Alito with gifts and all of these things um, and spoke in front of Congress. And, and then what was the MAGA Republicans response? Well, you have people like Jim Jordan roll up their sleeves and say, you're a liar, you're a liar without, okay, really? For three decades, this individual, this reverend who was fighting for you know, these, you know, to, to, to take away a woman's right to control her body. He was what a part of a three decade op to now expose the truth after he finally realized, whoa, what the hell is going on here? So anyway, Popak, let me throw it to you. But I mean, you don't get, you know, when these decisions are being made, they're being made by people like Justice Clarence Thomas, people like Justice Alito. And it's not both sides. It's coming from one side. The people are fed up. The people the people aren't taking this anymore. And Americans are realizing what's happening there. Oh, and by the way, you know, they go and do their same tricks again, right? Like the billionaire boys clubs goes to their billionaire buddies. And so what's the story today that's going on in the Wall Street Journal? I kid you not, Popak. This is actually a story in the Wall Street Journal from today where they say, um, because the story about Clarence Thomas, uh, ProPublica, broke the piece. And this is the an op-ed by the Wall Street Journal trying to trash ProPublica. And it says, this ProPublica piece is loaded with words and phrases intended to convey that this is all somehow disreputable. Words like super yacht, luxury trips, exclusive California, all-male retreats, sprawling ranch, private chefs, 
elegant accommodations, opulent lodge, lavishing the justice with gifts and more. Adjectival overkill, adjectivile overkill is the method of bad polemicists who don't have much to report. The ProPublica writers suggest that Justice Thomas may have violated ethical rules and they quote a couple of cherry-picked ethicists to express their dismay, right? Here's the trick. The Billion Dollar Boys Club, what do they all do? They all go right back. They all go right back to their billionaire friends to write these ridiculous articles. Popak, what do you think? I think um, I think Clarence Thomas has a big problem, but and I don't think his apology is going to make up for it. Let me just explain to everybody that all federal employees, forget, forget about judges, because we have a lawless United States Supreme Court because we have a lawless chief judge, Chief Justice Roberts, who refuses in the last 12 years or so to impose on the rest of his members of the Supreme Court a rule of ethics. Every lawyer, every judge in America, except for the nine that sit on the Supreme Court, are bound by rules of judicial conduct or professional conduct. That's our profession. That's the one that you and I Join Ben, except for one, the Supreme Court. John Roberts, uh, uh, as an apologist for his own bad behavior, says, we're guided by it, but we don't want it to have it imposed on us. So he doesn't. And then that leads to problems like we can't point to a rule of judicial conduct that he that Clarence Thomas has violated because they don't apply to him or to anybody else. And now you're left with that. But there is a way for the government to police these types of things by remembering that while they're judges, they also draw a paycheck and they're federal employees, just like you know uh, the maintenance staff down the hallway, they're federal employees too. And there are rules that apply to Clarence Thomas and everybody else about disclosure of gifts, there were until recently, I mean recently in the month of March, some loopholes about what you did or didn't have to disclose if you were just being wined and dined in somebody's property, even for weeks at a time. Maybe that extended to a yacht. Maybe that extended to a to a G5 jet or whatever Harlan Crow has. I don't think it would, but that was the only place that you didn't have to disclose it. If he gave you a gift which he did. Harlan Crow paid for a vanity project of a documentary on, on Clarence Thomas, which get this, Clarence Thomas looked the camera in the eye, even though he knows he's been lavished, the, the millions of dollars of gifts have been lavished on him and all sorts of exotic travel. It sounds like it's out of the next season of White Lotus on him and Ginny Thomas by this right ring MAGA neo-Nazi collector guy, um, obviously trying to influence the decisions that Clarence Thomas makes on the court. Um, he looked the camera in the eye and he said, I I'm just a poor boy from the South and I rather, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's pretty close. I'd rather be in RV parks and park in Walmart parking lots than and, and explore America than go anyplace else. Really? Every year you take an exotic trip that's worth a half a million dollars a year, okay? 10 times, 20 times what the average American makes. You, you are, it's lavished on you for a trip with you and your wife with Harlan Crow and and the Federalist Society people and MAGA and everybody else that's around you. Now, there's been there's been attempts by the Senate 
which really controls more than the House, really controls the purse strings over federal courts, including the Supreme Court. And Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, Democrat out of Rhode Island, especially Chris Murphy out of Connecticut. Chris Murphy has offered every year for 10 years the same ethics law to be applied to the Supreme Court. It gets shot down, even when the Democrats are in charge, year after year after year. But give him credit every year for 10 years, Ben. But Sheldon Whitehouse supervises by way of a committee that's under Dick Durbin and all in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, and the Financial Disclosure and the Judicial Conference of the United States on the Committee on Financial Disclosure just two weeks ago changed the laws that will now require the very disclosure that is now required um, uh, that uh, w- w- uh, for next year, this summer's trip, it looks like Clarence Thomas is now going to have to disclose it, and there's not going to be any uh, mealy mouth explanation that he got guidance from other colleagues in years past, and that's why all those uh, questionnaires that you put up on the screen were blank. He's not going to be able to get away with that now. He's going to have to list it uh, because these rules do apply to the Supreme Court members. There is a crime that we could talk about. And then impeachment, I want to briefly touch on. 5 U.S.C. 7353 says that a judicial officer shall not solicit or accept anything of value from a person who has business before the court. So look, Ginny Thomas has all of these MAGA foundations and think tanks that she has founded or she sits on the board of who then gins up these lawsuits because she goes out and finds the plaintiffs in order to change policy in their direction and puts those cases directly in front of um, her husband and files amicus briefs uh, or her organizations does in front of Clarence Thomas, in which he never sees a reason to disqualify or uh, recuse himself at all. But there is a crime, if you can connect the dots. I don't think we're going to see the prosecution of Clarence Thomas, although we would all take special delight in that. And for those that want the impeachment, and I know AOC has been very public about it, here's the problem with impeachment. It, it's it's called, you have to count and you have to come up with the numbers in order to impeach, and all impeachments have to start in the House. That's the prosecutors for the impeachment process. The court and the judges is the Senate. So articles of impeachment is the first step. In order to get articles uh, articles of impeachment, you got to have the majority in the, in the House, and the Democrats don't have the majority in the House at present. Maybe 2024, but not at present. So we're not going to see articles of impeachment. They may be offered, AOC or some other... A representative may may draw up articles of, of impeachment, just the way Marjorie Taylor Greene's constantly trying to impeach Joe Biden for no reason. But it's not going to get through that process. And even if it got through that process, Ben, and and there was an impeachment of Clarence Thomas for any of these things, it'd have to go to the Senate. And even though we have the Democrats have the numbers in the Senate, it would take 67 or two thirds of the senators. 67 senators would have to vote to convict. We've only got 50, 51 votes, so we'd have to get like more than a dozen, like 16 Republicans to cross over and and convict Clarence Thomas. Not happening. But look, 
if what if what is is shining a light as you like to say the best antiseptic is sunshine if that is creating a world where now Clarence Thomas has to look over his shoulder and disclose his close relationship with the neo-nazi collector memorabilia collector Harlan Crow and and everybody else has to worry hmm I wonder who I'm going on vacation with next summer this is all a good thing I mean a lot of stuff is coming out this year for instance not just through ProPublica Pro which did a great great job. They didn't just talk to three people to corroborate a story about these lavish uh, uh, trips. They talked to 20 people, 30 people, the crew on the plane, the crew on the yachts, the crew in the hotels, the crew in Adirondacks. I mean, they, they, they really did their they really did their job there. But look at all the other stuff, Ben, that's coming out, that, that uh, there's been an undisclosed relationship between Michael Chertoff's law firm and the Supreme Court for years, where, they, where he's been consulting on their behalf, even though... He, the, the chief justice goes out to Michael Chertoff to supposedly give independent advice on things. We find out about all of these incestuous relationships because at the end of the day, the Supreme Court is a business. They try to act like, you know, they're in an ivy tower, you know, an ivory tower and um, they can't be touched and they're, and they're um, infallible, but they're not. They're human beings that serve on boards and used to be Catholic law professors and have opinions. And when they're out of the country, like Sam Alito, and you mentioned it earlier, can say things like, wasn't it great that I ripped away a woman's right to choose? And he cracked a joke because he thought only the foreign press was present and everybody else wasn't. But look at all the things that are coming out now to really cast the Supreme Court in a proper light and put some uh, and put some um, uh, sunshine on them so that we can properly police their conduct and their behavior. Because all these federal judges from Cosmerica we talked about today to Clarence Thomas at the end of this podcast are all protected by lifetime appointments. Okay. They're on there until, you know, even when they go senior status until they're dead. Okay. And it's very difficult to get, to get rid of one. There's only been one Supreme Court justice in the history of America that's ever been impeached. And it was back in the 1800s. There's only been 15 federal judges who have been impeached and most of them have not been convicted. And the Supreme Court justice impeached wasn't even convicted. So we can't look to that avenue. We've got to use the First Amendment reporting, investigative reporting, Midas Touch Network, talking about these things hourly, daily, weekly, and bringing it to our listeners and followers so they can make educated decisions. Because what you're saying is, in theory, an impeachment could happen. However, the numbers aren't there, not because of both sides' issues, but because not only do you have a lawless Supreme Court, not on both sides, on the six justices who are the right wing justices are the ones engaging in these crimes. It isn't, oh, but the other justices. No, it's not. It's happening from these six right wing justices. That's where it's happening from. And then you have the lawlessness of these members of Congress, members like the Jim Jordans and the Kevin McCarthy's and the Gosars and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts, they're all like that right now. And because they wouldn't vote for impeachment, because they are okay with this conduct, because you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene comparing Donald Trump to Nelson Mandela and Jesus this week, because you have Jim Jordan uh 
attacking the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and because you have people like James Comer in the Oversight Committee who is fixated on trying to find more Hunter Biden nude photographs, that is what the issue is. It is not a both sides issue. And as I said before, if these issues were put to the people, if the people of the United States of America were able to put nine Supreme Court justices in, again, you would have nine to O decisions on all of these issues, which are now Democratic backed issues, not because it's a political thing, but because those issues tend to align with basic humanity and decency and where the people are at jobs, education, healthcare, the right of a woman to control her body, veterans, our military, protecting social security, protecting Obamacare, protecting Medicare. I can go on and on, protecting equality. I could go on and on and on, but that's where the American people are. And so Popak, to your point there, what do we do? We have to continue right now to build systemically these forces of good and truth and this movement the same way that surreptitiously the MAGA Republicans were building this network of evil and bad and destruction from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and they built the Federalist Society. They engineered this situation, and no one really kind of caught on to it until it was too late. Well, we're all, it's not too late though now. We all see what's going on. There's a real opportunity to stop this. That is why what we do here, what the Midas Touch Network does, and I consider when I say we, you watching this, you listening to this on audio, this is an existential exercise in saving our country, in saving and preserving and protecting our democracy. That's what this is. It's more than a show. It's more than a network. It's not just, oh, it's some sterile network. It's a movement, and it's a movement fueled by you, people who love our democracy democracy, people who love our constitution, who want to move our country forward, who want to make our country better, who want to stop this idiocracy, this fascism, this hate that is out there that is not both sides. It is clearly identifiable where it is coming from, and it is coming from this sick MAGA Republican movement, this lawlessness that we expose here. Those are the facts. No spin. Those are the facts, folks. Great spending this weekend with you. A historic week indeed. Michael Popak, always enjoy hosting these episodes with you, with Karen Friedman Agnifilo in the uh, midweek. You know, I am I'm comforted that justice arrived this week. I'm comforted that, as your whiteboard suggests, we're going to be seeing more and more of this. And if you go back and you look at all the other legal AFs, though, collectively, you know, you watching this at home, you listening to this, wherever you're listening to this or watching this, you know that these steps, we've been talking about them for a while, where it's going, why it's going in these directions. Um, and, 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 and here it is, you know, it's, it's now arrived and we got to deal with all of these other issues the same way we've been talking about Manhattan, the same way we've been talking about Phony Willis and Jack Smith, 
and collectively together, you being the most important part of the Midas Touch Network. The movement of the Midas Mighty of the Legal AFers is the most important part here. And Popak and I are so grateful for your support. We're so grateful for you. You are all so incredible. And it's just so special to be part of this movement with, with all of you. We love you. So thank you so much for watching this. Until next time, I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. This has been this weekend's edition of Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.